Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,251 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 11th of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Once More, Melchizedek. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. And we do want to study about a mysterious figure today. But last week, we continued our extended series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And our focus switched from the previous week from those strong warnings. And then last week, we looked at the brighter side of our journey that we as believers need to mature spiritually. Now, this week, we're going to drill down on that elusive and mysterious figure in the Old Testament. He was also a contemporary of Abraham. And long before God ever established the priesthood of his chosen people of Israel, we see a king and high priest, and his name was Melchizedek. And today's message, by nature, is going to be a little bit more academic due to the content as we probe the similarities and the differences between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And we'll see that the author uses a series of building blocks in order to build his argument of why Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Just like these Lego building blocks here, it's obvious that Paula made this house because if I made it, it certainly wouldn't look as near as nice as this. So as Paula built these and she connected the Legos, those building blocks, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing with Melchizedek in the story and relating them to Jesus Christ is he's putting those building blocks together so that we can understand how important Melchizedek was, although there's a, just a brief message of him or passage of him in the Old Testament. But before we do that, let's take a road trip. Now, we as a family have taken road, several road trips throughout our life, especially when the kids were young. Now, there may have been a time or two where we just took a joyride to explore unfamiliar scenery but most of the time, it was had a specific destination in mind. And an itinerary to go along with it, and an estimated time of arrival, which we all tr always tried to beat just by a little bit. Now, our trips were almost always business-related, of course. But we would add a few side trips there to places of interest. Depending on where we were going or the trip's purpose, most of the time, we would take the fastest, most direct route on the interstate where we could go as fast as possible. But occasionally... We would take those scenic routes, winding into the back roads and those slow zones of the sleepy towns, and an occasional stop at historical markers or scenic overlooks. Those scenic routes were never the fastest or the most efficient roads, but the destination was almost always a little more interesting and a little more enjoyable than just pursuing down the highway to reach our destination. Like most of our travels in the family, the author of Hebrews has a clear and straightforward fixed destination of mind to demonstrate that Christ was superior both in his person and his work. Now, sometimes his treatment of the central theme, the writer takes us a direct path, a direct route toward that destination. And he did so with explicit, straightforward language, as we find in Hebrews chapter 1, about the power and the deity of Jesus Christ. However, at other times, the writer would take a scenic route, meandering through a variety of sometimes obscure Old Testament passages, slowing down to employ methods of exploration very familiar to that first century Jewish believer, 
but very unfamiliar to us in the 21st century. The Jewish audience was familiar with those practices that the author was referring to. In doing so, he stops to explore intricate parallels, comparisons, and contrast between Old Testament passages and his writing in the New Testament. Our passage today is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, and it's one of those scenic routes in the book of Hebrews. It's often challenging for us to follow because there's significant differences between the first century Jewish mindset and our 21st century mindset. It's hard for us to get behind those eyes of those 21st, or the first century Jewish believers there that Hebrew, the author of Hebrews was writing to because the audience consisted of almost always Jews who had a heritage, heritage and they embraced Messiah, Jesus Christ, as that Messiah. But most of us are Gentiles who've accepted Jesus as the Savior of the world, and we weren't raised in those Jewish customs and traditions. The audience that Hebrews was written to was intimately familiar with those Old Testament imagery of the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple, and the worship there. Many of us have been personally, many of them have been personally involved in those Jewish practices themselves. They knew about the temple and went to the temple or the synagogues and practiced the Jewish faith. However, we, in this 21st century, whether Jew or Gentile, have never been involved with sacrifices or temple worship. We know about these things only from what the scripture tells us or other historical sources. But finally, the first century Jew was very familiar with the ways that the rabbis taught and how they elaborated on the Old Testament scriptures and how they used a unique set of techniques that may seem strange to us today, but were very common in that first century. And we encounter a very Jewish approach to the Old Testament in the author's portrayal, for instance, of Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, where David, as a prophetic psalm, said, The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. How many of us today have trouble pronouncing Melchizedek? It's Melchizedek. But I get tongue-tied on it quite often. Most of us can't spell it. I finally, after going through the several messages, being able to spell Melchizedek, I think I have it down now, but it took me quite a while. Few of us can recount that story in the Old Testament, though, which mentions Melchizedek. And my guess is that almost nobody, except, except without the help of the author of Hebrews, could expand on how Jesus Christ is like the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In a way, that would speak most directly to those original Jewish believers. Hebrews, in this passage we're going to study today, explores the comparisons between that historical figure, Melchizedek, and our eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. Those first century recipients of the letters to the Hebrews often were starting to soften on their belief of the Messiah. They were facing persecution and tribulations, and they wanted to go back to that which was comfortable to them of the Old Testament Jewish practices. They'd become disillusioned and disoriented, leading many to return to those roots of Abraham, the Mosaic Law, the Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices, and the rabbis' traditional interpretations of the Old Testament. If you remember a couple weeks ago where we say, it's like you're crucifying the Lord over and over again, and that's not what we as believers need to do because we've had a sacrifice once for all. For our sins, there's no need to go back to those old practices. 
The book of Hebrews argues that Christ was the center and the goal of the New Testament revelation. Whether it was through direct messianic prophecy, like Psalm 110, prophetic anticipation, waiting for that one to come, the Jewish Messiah, or even those foreshadowing figures, as in the case of the mysterious Melchizedek, or as Paula demonstrated with a shadow box up here. They're one of those scenic routes that the author takes us on, and the destination is clear. With the coming of the Messiah, a new era has dawned. We need to leave that old Judaism in our rearview mirror. We need to head forward to Jesus Christ. Let's start by reading verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 7, and it's on page 1868 in your pew Bible. Follow along with me. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now this mysterious figure of Melchizedek is the reference point of the writer's explanation here in this passage. The author's key passage refers back to Psalm 110, verse 4, which I read, which was already quoted before this in Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 6, to demonstrate that Christ, our heavenly high priest, and that should be our focus today. However, in Hebrews chapter 7, he now explains how Christ was from the Malchizian priesthood, which was superior to Aaron, which came much, much later. We have hundreds of years between Abraham and the Levitical priesthood of Aaron. And we re should recall that the subject of the author in chapter 5, verse 11 says, but it is hard to make clear to those dull readers. If you remember the last couple past messages, we discussed how the author Hebrews warned them of becoming spiritually dull. He said, you need to mature. You're not babies anymore. You shouldn't be feasting on milk only, but you need the meat. And the reason he had to go into that explanation is because of this passage here, where he digs into the meat of the scripture on how Melchizedek was a type or a figure pointing to Jesus Christ and how that priesthood was different than the priesthood of the Levites. In verses 1 through 3, the author begins an account by pointing out some of the similarities between a brief history of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And let me read that just to familiarize ourselves with it. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that was all it's mentioned in the Old Testament about Melchizedek, other than that prophetic psalm of David in Psalm 110. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. The author's point is what Melchizedek was in the biblical narrative, the biblical story, what Melchizedek was, Christ is, is in his very nature. And I'm going to repeat that phrase several times through our message today. The key to understanding how Hebrews uses this brief scene of Melchizedek, which I just read, 
is actually found in verse 3 of chapter 7. The author of Hebrews interprets the way Moses describes Melchizedek in chapter 14 of Genesis to clarify that Melchizedek was resembling the Son of God. He wasn't the Son of God, but he resembled or was a shadow forecasting the Son of God. Now, the word translated resembling here is a Greek word, aphomoio, and it means to make something resemble another thing. This doesn't mean that Melchizedek was in his nature the Son of God, or that he was in his nature eternal, divine, angelic, or heavenly. Instead, it means in the text of Scripture, that is, in the story or in the narrative, the description of Melchizedek strikes some similar, striking similarities to serve as a type of foreshadowing, as we looked at the shadow box, or an illustration of the eternal high priest of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at your bulletin insert today on the side, it says, once more, dot, 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 Melchizedek, we're going to look at three similarities between Melchizedek and Christ. So what are these similarities? They're highlighted by these author of Hebrews. The first similarity is they are similar in the fact that they are both priests and kings, unheard of before this. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, reigning over the city, which would be later called Jerusalem, as is told in Psalm 76, verse 2. And similarly, Jesus Christ is not only the king of Jerusalem, but he's the king of Israel. He's the king of the world. In fact, he's the king over all creation. Melchizedek was also the priest of the Most High God. And similarly, Jesus Christ is our high priest who makes intercession for us. And this is repeated throughout Hebrews in chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. So what Melchizedek is in the narrative, in the biblical story, Christ is in his very nature. The second similarity is that there are parallels between the names Melchizedek and Salem on the one hand, and Christ as the king on the other. Imploring the typical Jewish play on words, and if you understand the Hebrew a little bit, there's always a, a, a significant play on words that they use that we don't understand in our English language or are not familiar with. The author of Hebrews notes that the name Melchizedek itself means to point straight forward to Jesus, the way of Jesus. And the name comes from a Hebrew word called Melech, which means king, and Tezdek, meaning righteousness. So that's the king of righteousness. And then the word Salem mentioned in that passage is related to the word Shalom, meaning peace. So he was the king of peace also. Together, the name and the title of this mysterious figure in Genesis chapter 14, King of Righteousness, King of Peace, is also related in verse 2 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. So what Melchizedek was in the narrative, in the biblical story, Christ is in his very nature. Christ is righteousness incarnate, righteousness in the flesh. He was purely righteous, although human, and he was the embodiment of peace. The third similarity is the way that Melchizedek appears in the narrative and the storyline of Genesis 14 suggests that there are additional similarities with that of Christ. And we would expect Melchizedek to have been introduced in this biblical story with an impressive credential and prestigious pedigree as priest and king. Instead, there's very scant historical record in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And it does not mention his parentage, his ancestry, his progeny, his birth, or his death. It just says, here he is. He appears out of nowhere 
And he brought bread and wine. And I liked how Paula tied in that bread and wine to our communion because he is offering Abraham something to remember the high priest by. And he pronounced an earthly blessing on Abraham. He responded by giving Melchizedek back a tenth of all the plunder that he got from these five kings that he went after. He is a picture of Jesus Christ. This mysterious high priest of Salem appears in the text in verse 3 of chapter 7. Let me read it from the New Living Translation. It says, There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end of his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. He was just a shadow of Jesus Christ. Of course, as a mortal man, which he was, Melchizedek had been born and he died, but still as a biblical figure, what Melchizedek was in that story, that narrative, Jesus Christ is in his very nature. Melchizedek had no recorded beginning and end in the scripture. Jesus Christ had no actual beginning or end. And in these ways, the author of Hebrew argues that Melchizedek foreshadowed that coming son of God. As such, David can later relate and declare in his Messianic psalm of Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What Melchizedek was in the narrative, the Messiah was in his nature. Jesus is the priest and king. He is righteousness incarnate in the flesh. He is peace incarnate, eternal in his deity, and ever able to serve as our high priest. Now, in the bulletin insert, you'll see a comparison chart there. Let me just run through that today. Melchizedek and Messiah compared. In the narrative, Melchizedek was a priest outside the Levitical priesthood, therefore not a minister of the law of Moses, which came much, much later. In his nature, though, Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest outside the Levitical priesthood, Therefore, not a minister of the law of Moses, which he fulfilled when Jesus Christ came to earth in the flesh. During his life, his death, his burial and resurrection, he completed the law in full. Every regulation of the law was complete now. And that's why we are no longer under the law, because Jesus Christ completed the law for us. Because the law cannot be kept in its, in its entire nature. In the narrative, Melchizedek was the king of righteousness according to the translation of his name. But in his nature, Jesus Christ is the king of righteous, true king of righteousness because he purchased righteousness for us on the cross. In the narrative, Melchizedek is the king of peace as Salem means peace. But in his nature, Jesus Christ is the actual prince of peace who will one day bring a universal kingdom of peace when he restores the new global Eden and will reign righteously. In the narrative, Melchizedek was without record apparent, having neither the beginning nor the end recorded in Scripture, where Jesus Christ in his nature is the eternal Son of God, having begin neither beginning nor end, eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit as God the Son. The Melchizedek compared to the Messiah. And we can see the relationships there or the type there, but they're different because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all. Let's move on to verses 4 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 7. Just think how great he was. 
Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth collected by the people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid a tenth through the Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still was in the body of his ancestor. Interesting passage here. Hard sometimes for us in our 21st century mindset to get grasp it fully. But having shown the ways in which Melchizedek first served as a fitting type of Christ, and how Jesus is viewed having a priesthood in the order, according to the order of Melchizedek, in verses 1 through 3, the author of Hebrews now takes that next careful step for us. In his argument, he's putting building blocks on his building, saying this is why we believe that the Messiah is a fulfillment of everything. He's building that building out. The Old Testament expectation of a Messiah was can be traced and fulfilled in Christ. And to do so, he demonstrates that Melchizedek himself was greater even than Abraham. And the Jewish believers, the Jewish race, thought that Abraham was the greatest of all patriarchs. If you remember when they argue with Christ, we are Abraham's children. He was the ultimate. He was the most revered. Moses next, but revered as the beginning of the nation of Israel. And here are two types of ways that the argument of Melchizedek is greater than Abraham are supported. And this is on your other side of your bulletin insert under the application, but we got a couple points before that. The first step, or the first argument is, when Abraham encountered Melchizedek after winning the battle against his enemies, having the priest, gave the priest one-tenth or a tithe of his spoil of the war. So that's one argument saying, this was before Levi. This was before the nation of Israel, hundreds of years before the nation of Israel. But we see, still see Abraham giving a tenth of all of his spoils. Now, the author parks here and draws some interesting implications of Abraham's payment of these tithes to Melchizedek. He points out that in the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood received the, the tithes from the people of Israel. That is, those descendants of Abraham in verse 5. However, because Abraham was the ancient ancestors of the Levites, when he paid that tithe to Melchizedek centuries earlier, in a sense, the Levitical priests were also genetically in Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. One of the commentators I looked up was F.F. Bruce. He notes, the tithe which Abraham gave to Melchizedek was received as by one who, as far as record goes, has no end of life. So this is the eternal priest forever. Thus, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and by implication, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites, although they were descendants of Abraham in verses 9 through and 10. Now, the second argument is that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, the one who possessed the promises of God. Abraham received the promise that he would become a great nation, and out of him, all the world, people of the world would be blessed. And yet... Melchizedek 
was the one who blessed Abraham, the father of all nations. Another commentator by the last name of Hughes wrote, in a form of biblical blessing, the superior always blesses the inferior. The author of Hebrews notes that such an order of rank and propriety of blessing is without any dispute. So by the nature of giving a blessing and Abraham receiving that blessing indicates that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, who was greater than the nation of Israel. This is not to say that Melchizedek occupied a place of superior nature to Abram. After all, they were both humans. The priest king of Salem occupied a position of greater authority than Abraham, greater to indicate the person in status or prominence or rank. So by implication, Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the priesthood of the Levites. The Levites who were still in the body or descendants of Abraham in verse 10 of chapter 7. The details of the author's arguments may seem strange to us today. Why go through all this narrative? But to the Jewish readers of that first century, they grasped it immediately because they knew how special place that Abraham had in the children of Israel and how the Levitical priesthood actually directed their entire life. But if there was one greater than Abraham, then wasn't that more important than even Abraham and all the law? The details of the author's arguments may seem strange, but rest assured that those Hebrew readers of the first century understood the intricacies of it, assuming that they, slumped and they snapped out of their spiritual slumber that he exhorted them to do in chapters 5 and 6. And now that they were ready to hear this meaty discussion of the, of the scripture, and this is why he had to wake them up first and say, wake up, you're sleeping, you're babies, grow up, because I have some meaty scripture to give you, and you need to understand how important this is. So even though we may have some trouble understanding or following the writer's detailed step-by-step -step explanation, we should have no trouble seeing the thrust of his argument. So I put it here on our board, so even someone like me might understand it. We see that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and by blessing Abraham, he also blessed the Levitical priesthood, who were in the body of Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham. They were blessed by the high priest Melchizedek. In the same nature, Abraham gave a tenth or a tithe of all he got from the plunder of those wars back to Melchizedek. And by going through Abraham, as descendants of Abraham, they were actually giving tithes back to the great high priest. Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. The Levitical priests were in Abraham. So therefore, the Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priest. And this is an important factor if we to understand Jesus Christ in a fullness. As our high priest, we have to understand that he is outside the Levitical priesthood who came from the tribe of Levi. In your bulletin insert in the center section there, there's two logical building blocks that we want to add to our building today. These two small steps are the entire point of regarding the superior, superiority of Christ in his person and his work. Because first, Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priest. Melchizedek's priesthood, which existed long before the law of Moses, is greater than the Levitical priesthood established under Moses. 
in the second block, or the second step is, because the Messiah's priesthood is in the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110, verse 4, in Hebrews 7, 17, the Messiah's priesthood is greater than the priesthood of the Levites under the law of Moses. When Christ fulfilled the law, he completely fulfilled all the requirements of the law so that we won't have to. What a powerful argument the author is giving to his waffling audience, that audience who was babes and still drinking the milk of the word when they needed to grasp these more meaty subjects about the Messiah. Remember, the original recipients of the letter had been tempted to back away from their complete trust in the Messiah, the great high priest, and find significance in that Levitical priesthood once again with its continual sacrifices and rituals. And you remember two weeks ago, it, the author said it would be like you're sacrificing Christ over and over again if you go back to those old practices. It's no longer needed because that priesthood has been finished. It's completed. Aaron was the father of the Levitical priesthood. It's called the Aaronic priesthood after Aaron. But this order of Melchizedek, a king priest who foreshadowed a still greater future king and priest, is Jesus Christ. Let's finish our passage today in verses 11 through 17. As the author says, if perfection could have been attained through that Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must change also. He whom these things are said to belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. The only ones that could serve at the altar was the tribe of Levi. And yet Melchizedek was a high priest and Jesus Christ was from the tribe of Judah, as it goes on here. It says, For it is clear that the Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestries, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, and the author here uses Psalm 110 again, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the author furthers his argument by pointing out the implications of this Davidic prophecy in Psalm 110. And through this prophecy, God demonstrated that it was necessary for another priest to arise because it was not to be part of the order of Aaron. The audience of the letter of Hebrews has to deal with this implication of Psalm 110, verse 4. The new priest coming, whose priesthood resembled that of Melchizedek, there was obviously something that was wrong with the Aaronic priesthood, something that could not accomplish. The priesthood of Aaron could never accomplish perfection, as verse 11 in chapter 7 tells us. The Levitical priesthood was inexplicitly linked to the law of Moses. And with the coming of the law of Moses came the establishment of the Aaronic priesthood. And that's told in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. Therefore, the author makes an obvious point that the changing of the priesthood, if we're changing the priesthood out, that from Aaron to Melchizedek, as ex expected in light of the Messianic Psalm 110, verse 4, there must also be a change regarding the law of Moses. If you're changing the priesthood out, then the law of Moses needs to be changed out also. 
Melchizedek represented something more than an ancient and was separated from that later law of its priest and its priesthood. It's something that they couldn't produce. That priesthood was lacking something. The Levitical priesthood failed to give the believer direct access to God. They had to go through that high priest to gain access to God. Another thing is that law prevented maturity in the life of the believer. No one could fulfill the law, therefore no one could become fully mature or perfect to fulfill that law except for Jesus Christ. But where the old covenant had failed, the old covenant and the law and the Levitical priesthood failed, the new covenant succeeded with Jesus Christ. He was the promise according to the order of Melchizedek. And he came with both assurance of unhindered access to God. Because of Christ, our high priest, we have direct access to the throne of God today. And he also provided us through the Holy Spirit the growth toward real spiritual maturity. And we'll look at that more when we get to chapter 12 of Hebrews. Now, in verses 13 and 14, the author explains that Jesus Christ descended from the tribe of Judah rather than the tribe of Levi. And as such, he stood outside the legal lineage of the priests under the covenant law of Moses. His priesthood, therefore, was a completely different order in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. It was an eternal priesthood based on an indestructible life. All the priests prior to that died. They went away. But that indestructible life foreshadows through that mysterious Melchizedek in verses 15 and 16. The author of Hebrews says it is meant through the promise of Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break it. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 17 of this passage. So what's our application of Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 17? The overall application is the changing of the priesthood also required a changing of the law. So when Christ took his position at the Father's right hand to function as our great high priest, he came not to continue the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, but he came as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. As the author of Hebrews said in verse 12, and let me read it from the New Living Translation, it says, And if this priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. Jesus uprooted the law. He fulfilled the law because the law produced no fruit in the believer's life. In his place, he planted an orchard of grace. Whereas the law was weak and ineffective, grace is effectual and assured. And through this, I want to leave you with three promises that we have with Jesus Christ as our great high priest. The first promise is we must never forget that grace, and this is in your bulletin insert, we must never forget that grace, not law, enables us to draw near to God. The rigid rules provide no access to God. Legalistic principles offer us no security. Our security is in a Savior who has fulfilled the law for us. Having fulfilled the law, including the need to be perfect in perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice for sin, Christ has ushered a new world order based on the principle of grace. Second promise is being right with God doesn't require us to work through a daunting list of do's and don'ts or turn to a priest who is also sinful as our mediator. Instead, we turn to that great high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. He blesses us. He keeps us. He enables us to give back to him in love. 
not for merit, but because of his mercy. Our high priest is indestructible. He lives permanently and can do what no earthly priest could ever do for us. And the third promise is that Jesus not only knows where we're coming from, but more importantly, he knows where we're going. He knows what's in store for us eternally. He can assure us that we'll get there in terms of our spiritual maturity and eternal security. He not only cares for where our head is and where our heart is, but he also cares what our hands are doing. And unlike that Old Testament priesthood, with its endless sacrifices over and over again, our high priest, Jesus Christ, not only tells us that we're weak and empty and need saving, but most importantly, he saves us, he strengthens us, he fills us with the power to trust him and obey him. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. Which John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5 tells us. But with him, we can do all things. In Philippians chapter 4, 13. We need to thank God. That with the changing of the priesthood from the Levitical priesthood to the Messianic priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, there will be a change in the law as well. He says, there is no condemnation. We're free at last, free from the bondage, free from the slavery of sin, because I have fulfilled the law. I am your great high priest in heaven, interceding before God for you. He gives us free access into the throne room of God to bring our petitions, our requests, our suffering and our begging before God and says, yes, you have access to my throne through Jesus Christ. And that's why it was so important for the author of Hebrews to get to those first century Jews who were tempted to fall back into their old traditional practices of sacrifices and the rituals surrounding the temple and say, you don't need that now because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all things in the order of Melchizedek. A new priesthood has come. And that's the application for our passage today. Now, the next two Sundays will be a special time for all of us. First John Cooch next week will share about the apostles, Paul's companions and fellow tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla, and how they impacted that first century church dramatically. And then the following week, John is going to have a message about discipleship. Something needs prepared. And it will return, and when Paul and I return from our cruise in a couple weeks, on July 16th, we'll return to our lessons about Hebrews. And the next message in Hebrews will be a perfect and permanent priesthood. So in preparation for that message, and I'll include the passages from John and John for the next couple weeks in the in bulletin also. But next week is Acts 18. Study that for the lesson on Priscilla and Aquila. And then two weeks from there, and um, we'll look at Hebrews 7, verses 18 through 28 as we continue on through Hebrews. Paul and I will be leaving Saturday evening, next Saturday evening, and we'll be gone the two weeks after that. So just be praying for us that we'll have safety on our trips and just a blessed time. We also had a blessed time with Kip, who goes back to El Paso on Wednesday with his dad. So we do appreciate him being here. But as we think about our passage today and that priesthood of Jesus Christ, let us apply that to our hearts to serve him in love. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love, your goodness, your mercy to us. We thank you for this 
foreshadowing of Melchizedek through, into Jesus Christ, our great high priest, that we're no longer under the law, but we can serve you in freedom and grace because of what you did for us. You became the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, which took away the sins of the world. Help us to acknowledge that. Help us to serve you faithfully because of that. Be with us throughout this next week. Help us to be faithful servants of you, to show others the love of Christ in everything that we say and everything that we do. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.